Good morning, church. Hey! Yes, fall is here. I'm in a sweater, and the Bengals are going to let me down in three more weeks. I love New England, but I'm originally from Cincinnati, so weep with those who weep. My name is Ben Seaman. I'm the lead minister here at RCC. We are in the middle towards the end of a seven-week teaching series called Movement in Meals, looking at seven, seven different meals that Jesus had with religious, non-religious, uh, good people, sinners, because uh, we're really interested in leaning in to see what, like, what's important to Jesus. And one of the topics that seems to be important with, to him is talking about this idea of the kingdom of God. Now, before we jump into our uh, text or text this morning, uh, I want to highlight two different next steps that you can take. Uh, our life groups are starting back up. Andrew uh, highlighted a little bit of that. Uh, the first weekend of October, we're going to start a seven-week teaching series on Revelation. Not the weird stuff, but the historical stuff, chapter 2 and 3. And we're going to look at seven churches that Jesus sort of gave a report on, what they're doing well in and what they can grow in. So we want to encourage you, if you're not in a life group, if you don't have community, especially in this series, man, join a life group, text the word with to the 10-digit number on the screen. As Andrew mentioned as well, our hope and our desire uh, is to reopen family ministry, kids and students, the first weekend of October. Uh, and so if you are interested in joining our family ministry team, serving on the weekends, once a month, every week, your, uh, your availability is completely, totally, obviously it, it's up to you. It's, it's a church. We're not a cult. Uh, we would love for you to join our family ministry team. We kind of, you know, I'll just keep it real. I've never led through a pandemic. And so reopening family ministry, reopening the church, really we're kind of going at the pace of uh, our volunteers. So uh, when we did our survey, like I don't know, it felt like forever ago, back when Tiger King was a thing. Um, a lot of our families said, we'll watch online until kids' ministry can reopen. And so if you're uh, a parent or maybe you've served in kids' ministry, uh, family ministry before, we'd love for you to uh, uh, step into that as well as we reopen for uh, the fall school year. Uh, today we're going to step back from the Gospel of Luke. We've been looking at the seven different meals that Jesus had with Luke. And today what I'm going to do is, is kind of give a broad stroke of a meal that Jesus gave for the church every weekend. Uh, we call it communion. You might have grown up in traditions, denominations that called it the Eucharist. Uh, Eucharist just means happy meal. It means to eat food and to be thankful, uh, sort of like Thanksgiving. Amen. Uh, and it's also called the Lord's Supper. Uh, but to the Jew in the first century, it was called the Passover meal. And to Jews today, it's still called the Passover, although they don't acknowledge that Jesus is the Passover lamb, the Passover meal. And so I want to talk of, about, again, in broad strokes, the importance and the spiritual formation that is communion, the bread and the wine that we take every weekend. If you're at home watching and you have your communion uh, emblems ready to go, uh, or if you don't, I encourage you to grab those because at the end of my sermon, we'll be taking it in unison together. The big idea for the sermon is this, is that communion is the meal that sustains us on our journey with Jesus. You're going to hear the word journey a lot around RCC because we, we believe that faith and life is a journey. It's an invitation really to, to come alive. And I don't know about you, but you don't want to be around me when I'm on a hike and you didn't bring enough snacks. Because uh, then I go into angry mode. I lose my Christianity. You'd be surprised I'm a pastor. Um, but we need sustenance in our journey. The same is true for our, our spiritual formation. And the gift that is communion is 
a meal of sustenance that takes us from week to week if we're willing to step into it. So again, I'm going to do a broad stroke of this. I mean, we could be here for hours, but you're like, no, you said football started. Number one is that communion is a meal that sustains us through bitterness. What? I didn't expect that. Yeah, communion or the Passover began when the Israelites were on the run. In Exodus 12, 7 through 11, Moses writes these words. Then they, the Israelites, are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lamb. So this is one of 10 plagues that God's sending on the Egyptians. And God says, if you want your firstborn son to live, uh, kill a lamb and put its blood on the door frames, and I will pass over you. This is where we get the language of Passover lamb. But if you don't have that, then the wrath of God is coming for your family. It is. It's sobering. Verse 8, that same night, uh, they are to eat the meat. So this is a Passover meal. Meet the, uh, eat, words are hard. Eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roast it over a fire with the heads, legs, and internal organs. Do not leave any of it till the morning. If, if someone is left till morning, some of it's left till morning, you must burn it. God's not into leftovers. This is how you are to eat it. With your, this is interesting. With your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, eat in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Right? The Israelites were to prepare a meal that when God gave them the signal to flee and to run from Pharaoh, they would have sustenance in their journey. From, and if you're unfamiliar with the Old Testament, from slavery to freedom, from Egypt to Canaan. And this literally happened in history. It's also a metaphor, and Exodus pairs very well in terms of spiritual conversations with the book of Romans. We too are, we too are sinners and enslaved even to our own sin. It's interesting that God would prepare a meal in the most bitter and, and darkest of times for his people. And the Israelites were, were grieving about many things and bitter about many things. In Exodus 1.11, right, the text reads that Pharaoh enslaved the Israelites to build his city for him. That's systemic racism. That's systemic oppression to enslave a group of people for the betterment to build its city for free? And this is when God provides this meal for his people. Now, here are some of the things that the Israelites were bitter about. They were bitter with their tears, facing hardship under the brutal thumb of Pharaoh's cruelty. They were bitter about death. The Egyptians lost firstborn babies and animals. They were bitter about life because the firstborn of Hebrew families lived. But the Egyptian firstborn did not. But they lived because of the Passover lamb had died. There's also a grieving of sin and bitterness, right? 
The Bible talks about how sin and bitterness ultimately will dominate our lives. In Deuteronomy 29.18, Moses writes, Make sure there is no man or woman, clan or tribe among you today whose heart turns away from the Lord our God to go and worship the gods of those nations. Make sure there is no root among you that precedes such bitter poison. You want to kill a church? You want to destroy a marriage? You want to store... Destroy, uh, destroy friendship. Let her, let bitter people run wild. Let bitter people dominate the conversation, dominate the marriage, dominate the friendship, dominate church, and let the bitterness spread. The Bible says that sin and bitterness is a root. The Bible also says that sin and bitterness is crouching at our door, constantly knocking. Who cares? You do. Here's why. It just it wants your attention. There's a sexiness about sin. There's a seduction about sin, right? Of course there is. We wouldn't do it if it wasn't fun, right? Or we wouldn't do it if it wasn't exhilarating. Because sometimes we think our lives are boring. And we want to make sure we're alive and do something where we might have to cross some lines. Sin and bitterness also dominates us. In Acts 8.23, Luke writes, For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Uh, I don't know, uh, I've told you many stories about my family's um, history, but if you've ever been married or lived with an addict, there's a moment where um, the, the lie that sin is, is that I can do something for a little bit. Or the lie that we tell ourselves is, I deserve this because I'm going through a really hard time. And then at some point, the addiction takes us over. <laughs> But it leads us to believe that we're still in control. And that's exactly what the writers of the Bible are talking about. That there's, at some point, there's a subtle exchange where you are no longer in control of your life and sin is actually dominating you. Fourthly and finally about sin and bitterness, sin and bitterness uh, rises within us and will ultimately give birth to death. James, Jesus' brother, even talks about this. The Passover meal was given in a season of tension, and you need tension. Donald Miller, in one of his books, wrote this, you can't tell a good story without conflict. The story can't be beautiful or meaningful. We're taught to run from conflict, and it's robbing us of some really good stories. One of the beauties of the cross, of the gospel, And one of the reasons why I'm a Christian, outside of the historical reliability of the text, uh, is that the Bible does not not turn away from the reality that is life. And part of communion, and part of us taking communion every weekend here at RCC, like, I remember when I was little, I was like, Mom, what do I do here? You know, like, be quiet, you know, just take the snack, okay. Uh, Part of it is like, just reflect on what Jesus did for you, which is, I'm not doubt. yes, you should do that because grace is amazing. Jesus was executed under the worst form of a government's version of capital punishment, 100%. But we also need to realize the bitterness of our sin and what our sin has done to us, right? Our preferred futures are now shattered dreams. The relationships we once, once enjoyed may have been broken. And the beauty of the gospel is this, is that Jesus engages and moves into the bitterness and the emotional toll that sin costs us on 
the cross. Passover began (laughs) not in a nice Hallmark fall movie. It began with God's people on the run, running for their very lives. And I get it. If you've never ran for your life, if you've never been under heavy uh, political persecution, this is like, I don't, I'm not even attached to this. But we have to, you have to understand Judaism to appreciate Christianity. Every, every, every question that Jesus is asked, especially the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 8, is his interpretation of the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. This is why Jesus says about sex, marriage, divorce, anger, you have heard it said, right? You listen to this pastor's podcast, 2020 language, but I tell you, here's my interpretation of it. We have to understand And we have to emotionally connect with the Israelite people. Maybe you have never felt systemic racism or oppression. Maybe you've never had to build a country or the city on your backs, but the Israelites had to. And their story is our story in communion. The Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, Passover is delivered in the tension of a bitter season of a really hard season, probably hard season, emotionally difficult season like the one that we're in right now. (laughs) Secondly, communion is a meal that addresses our sin and it lightens our load. God, God, the other thing I love about the writers, um, the writers of the Bible are less interested in proving that God exists. They already believe that. They're more interested in describing Uh, what God is like. And God in the Bible is a God that does not lord his authority over us and chastise us without giving a solution, right? And there's a solution to our sin. There's a solution to the bitterness that is a result of our sin. And it it is his son broken and bleeding on a Roman cross. In Luke 22, 7 through 8, Jesus again, like he would have grown up celebrating Passover. Like, like at what age? Like 10, 13? <laughs> Joseph looks at his boy and goes, yeah, that's about you. And you're like, oh man, I don't, this is, this is going gonna to end badly for me, right? As a Jewish boy, he would have practiced the Passover, the way you celebrate Thanksgiving every single year. And he's doing it again at the end of Luke. Luke writes, they came to the the day of the unleavened bread, or which is the Passover lamb. Uh, and the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus told Peter, like any rabbi, he would tell his students, right, go and make preparations for us to eat. But what they probably didn't realize, all right, not, this is not a jab, it's just a statement of fact. Men did not realize who Jesus was until after his resurrection. Women got it 100% of the time, quicker than men. So it's likely that Peter and John and the other disciples have no, like, they're not even in the reality, like, I'm actually going to eat with the literal Passover lamb. Someone that is both human and God, two in one, right? And for them, like, Jesus lived, you know, depending on who you read, 30 to 33 years, right? And they followed Jesus for about three years. So how is this Passover any different? And yet, 
it was. It was the last one Jesus was going to have with his disciples. Now, check this out. In the Bible, leaven is sometimes used in Scripture to symbolize the presence of sin. Now, notice what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5. Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. See, the writers of the Bible are interested in telling us who we are because we all live like we're on Wall Street, trading in our identity for what we think is going to be a greater value of who and what God says that we are. And the writers of the Bible are reminding us of who we really are. Paul goes on to say, for Christ, our Passover lamb, for the world really, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with old bread, leavened sin, with malice and wickedness. See, you can keep going. Celebrate the Passover. It's fine. It's fine. But, but here's what we're going to do. We're going to celebrate it with unleavened bread. Why? Because Jesus claimed to be God without what? Sin. There is no sin in him. And that unleavened bread is marked with sincerity and what? Truth. That when we come to the table of communion... We're eating the bread that represents the person and work of Jesus. And who else in your life claims, I'm going to tell you the truth of who you are, and I'm still going to love you. I'm still going to walk with you. I'm going to tell you the truth of who you are. I'm going to tell you stuff you don't even remember, stuff that you've blocked out, and stuff that you haven't even realized is true about this thing we're all in right now, called human existence. And Jesus willingly did that on the cross. Now, part of a Jewish meal, which we've talked about, is that a rabbi, and we did this with the happy meal, the, the loaves and the fish a couple weeks ago, uh, rabbis would, would break the bread and then offer it prayers in uh, first century Judaism, and even today, were not bow your head, close your eyes. They would lift up their hands to the heavens and thank their father for the meal that they've that he's given them. And this is what Jesus does on the cross. His body is literally broken. Most men and women, but most men who, did, who were flogged by Roman soldiers did not even make it out of the flogging alive. I'll, I'll spare that for another time, all right? I didn't give you a heads up. Um, but let's just say when they stood up, they would fall over and they would expire. Jesus back was ripped wide open. When he was on the cross, the, a splintered cross, and they basically essentially had uh, sort of like uh, 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 sort of um, spiked nails. Like I know a lot of artists say the nails went through the hands. You can't, I don't know if you tried this, hopefully not. You can't hold up a body, the hands. You have to do it through the the two bones right here. It's one of the seven pressure points, right? And so part of why crucifixion was so excruciating is that you would die because you would be out of breath. You had to pull yourself up. Your chest would have to expand. You would gasp for air, but Jesus didn't die due to lack of air. Medically speaking, when the Roman soldier pierced him with his uh, like spear thingy, 
it, it, it penetrated the, the fluid sac. I'm not, I'm not a doctor, but I love the show House, so correct me if I'm wrong later. But it pierced the, the sac that's around the, our hearts, and the water and the blood streamed out of him. Jesus, medically speaking, not theologically speaking, medically speaking, literally died of a broken heart. Jesus went to the cross, and our sin broke him. Literally, historically, medically, and spiritually, all aspects of those L-Y words were all happening to Jesus on the cross in that moment. But there's another sort of emblem we take, right? Not just the bread, but the juice. It represents the shed blood on the cross. Now, this is where religion kind of, get, kind of takes a scary, like, you know, walking dead turn. But significance of blood is critical, like even in the medical field, even in religion and theology, right? In the Bible, man is not to drink any blood because it would challenge God's authority over life. The blood of a sacrificed animal had to be poured out in God's presence, representative of not the man, but God is in control. Or to use a theological word, that God is sovereign over all of life human and animal life. Animals are to be killed for the meat and butchered in a manner that poured out blood would be before God to acknowledge his authority. Death is representative by the shedding of blood. When blood leaves the body, it symbolizes that life itself is being let out of the body. Thus, blood was sprinkled on the doorposts in Egypt to represent the death angel uh, that <clears throat> occurred as instructed by God, and he would pass over your family if the blood was on your doorpost. And the same thing, likewise, blood was collected from animals and presented to God to represent that a death had occurred. Now, here's what you need to know. This is, a, this is what we would say in theology is a closed-handed issue. This is something like you have to believe. It's not It's not really up for debate, okay? There are closed-handed issues in theology, and then there's open-handed issues where, you know, there's things like liberty and grace. Shed blood is presented to God as a request for, here's a big Bible word, atonement. Atonement for sin. Leviticus 17.11 reads this, For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. To, to atone for the sins of the world means somebody has to pay the bill, right? Somebody has to make atonement for the sins of the world. Now, this is not a new idea in the first century, okay? The fact that Jesus claimed to be God and the Savior of the world, and to, like he's, not, he's one of many people on the outskirts of the Roman Empire <laughs> that would get a band of crazy brothers and sisters and say, follow me and we'll overtake the Roman government. But this is where Christianity separates itself from all other world religions and all other Roman religions in the first century, and it is this. Christianity is the only religion that teaches and and has done this, that God comes to us to die. We don't die or offer sacrifices so that God would forgive us. Christianity is the only world religion, and in the first century of the Roman Empire, that would teach 
that God would come down to humanity, that God would give himself up for the sins of the world. Hebrews 12, 24 reads this, Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, a new relationship. Language we would use today would be like marriage. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Remember that story in the Old Testament, Cain and Abel killing each other like brothers fight and do? This is why Jesus' blood is better than Abel's blood. (laughs) We like to enact Abel's blood. When Abel screams for bloodshed, he's calling for vengeance, right? Now, we like to say that God is love and God is loving, but (laughs) when we're attacked, when we're offended, when we're taken advantage of, we kind of like the concept of God's wrath, as long as it's not pointed at us, right? Right? Hell, hell seems kind of like, okay, yeah, I can come to terms with that as long as they go there, right? Jesus' blood, what does it cry out for? It doesn't cry out for vengeance. What does vengeance mean? Well, a lot of things. One of the things it means is life isn't fair. You did to me, I'm, I'm going to do to you what you did to me. What does Jesus' blood cry out for? The mercy of God. Right? Which makes sense because in the New Testament, the writers say God's love or God the Father does not treat us as what? As our sins deserve. He doesn't cry out for vengeance. He uses his son goes to the cross and cries out for mercy. Now, with the time I have left, I want to talk about some some pretty key big concepts of what is happening to the shed blood of Jesus on the cross. All right. This is this is something that as a pastor, I have to do, right? It, it, I have to do this because this is a close-handed argument. These are things that throughout the beginning of the first century, that if you called yourself a Christian, you believed these things. And that is just that we've been saved by the blood of Christ. Number one, we've been, the Bible says, redeemed and purchased, right? Exodus 6.6 6 says, uh, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, I will bring you out under the yoke. Yoke is like a teaching, a way of life. Like the way you do life and the way you, like your schedule, that's your yoke. Uh, <clears throat> I will free you from being slaves to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and mighty acts of judgment. Your sin, sort of like the, to use the language like ransom, your sin cost Jesus his life. People incorrectly say that, like, the devil or something put Jesus on the cross, and so Jesus is, like, buying back the devil. No, that's that's heresy. The Father, according to Isaiah, put his Son on the cross on your behalf where we should have been. Number two, we've been justified by his blood. Romans 5.21, Paul writes, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin. Like, you ever done a new activity, like maybe a physical thing? You're like, oh, yeah, I can run three miles. Sure, I'll show up tomorrow to the park. Half a mile in, you're like, oh, man, I I just want to go to Taco Bell, right? Jesus had no frame of reference of what sin was. He never sinned. And in a moment on the cross, he not only became sin, porn, rape, affairs, anger, hatred, He felt the weight of your sin for the very first time. And why did he do this? Paul says that in Jesus, theologians call this the great exchange. We might get Jesus' righteousness and Jesus would give 
we give Jesus our sin. We've been justified by his blood. What does that mean? What does it mean to be justified? Quickly, what it means to be justified is if you were ever on trial for a crime, it's essentially being found guilty of that crime, and then you come back the next day or a week later or a month later for the penalty phase, and the judge looks at you and says, you are guilty of the crimes that have been brought against you. However, I was going to um, give you a, a penalty of life without the possibility of parole, but that has already been served on your behalf. Does that make sense? So God's not a chump, right? He doesn't overlook like, oh, you tried, buddy. No, no, no. He takes sin seriously. But the beauty that is the gospel is that though we are dead in our sins, according to Romans, Jesus, <laughs> Jesus serves the life sentence without the possibility of parole on the cross for us. That's what it means to be justified. It doesn't mean that God glances over our lives. He takes it seriously. He says, you're guilty of sin, but my son has served the penalty of your sin so that you might not be dominated, right, by the power of your sin. Number three and four go hand in hand, that we've been washed by the blood of Jesus. I'm going to go right into point four. And we've also been cleansed by his blood. 1 John 1, 7 says, if we walk in the light as Jesus is in the light, we have fellowship, we have community with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Real quick about life groups. If you never get to the heart of what's going on in your life, you're never going to have fellowship with one another, right? In other words, get real. But what John is saying here is another beautiful theological idea that Here's a big word. Jesus is our expiation. What does that mean? It means you're sitting with Jesus in the living room and your sin is in the middle of you and Jesus, of which Jesus already died for. And there's that awkward moment of like, wow, you're like my life is on an iPad in front of you, Jesus. Jesus is our expiation. It means he takes our sin and he removes it. Never to be in our presence again, which is in rhythm with Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement, where the priest would put a red sort of, uh, I don't know, ribbon or something on the goat's head, and the goat would leave the Israelite community and would literally, terrible, glad YouTube wasn't back then, fall off a cliff, symbolizing that the sin of Israel was on this lamb's head, which is what Jesus did for us. You crush a man's skull, Right? With a crown of thorns, what's around his head? Red blood dripping, dripping forth. So why do you need to care about this idea that Jesus is your expiation? Because we've taken things like sex, so beautiful, so creative, and we've done terrible things with it, right? Pornography, like I see this all the time on social media. I don't know that it's been around for a while, but it's getting traction. Like child trafficking, Hey, there's this uh, document documentary on Netflix. I haven't watched it. It's, it's one name I forget. Basically, it's a documentary about these little dancers, these females that are like eight years old, and we're over-sexualizing little girls. Like, let's not have the conversation of like, I can't believe that's on Netflix. Why is that even, why is there a market for that? The fact that Jesus is your expiation, th this is so wickedly beautiful is that Jesus dies, 
for the sins you've committed. We all know that. Even, you know, you don't have to be religious to know that. But the beauty of the gospel and that Jesus is our expiation, he, he dies for the sins that have been done to you. Right? When you, were, when you were kids and you thought, like, fooling around in your parents' basement was just fun, not knowing the trauma, <laughs> which is another sermon that was happening to you in that moment, when you were raped, when you were molested, when you were abused, things that have been done to you, of which, in my 15 years of ministry, that's when people leave the church. If God is good, why the... I can't say that on Sunday morning. Why did that happen? And the reality is, as much as I look at my world that I see, and I have questions about human suffering, I cannot deny the wickedness. I hate that. I cannot deny the wickedness of my own, of my own heart. And so the beauty that is Jesus being our expiation is sort of like, um, maybe you do it now, I don't, I'm a big kid, but when you play outside all day, you're covered in mud, playing kill the man, football game I played when I was a kid, and you take a shower and the mud just comes off your body, down the drain. That's the beauty that is this idea that Jesus is our expiation, that Jesus' blood washes away our sin. Thus being killed for the penalty of our sin, but also through the gospel, if necessary, good counseling, good church, good friends. He takes away the power of our sin. The, the, I'm sorry, the power of the sin that somebody has done to us. And that's not like, it's not like a microwave thing, right? It's not a hot pocket thing. It's over time. Number five, <laughs> I know football started, but I could be here for another hour. <laughs> We've been released from our sin, by his blood. In Revelation 1.5, the, the writers of Jesus is our faithful witness, the firstborn, the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us, he has freed us from our sin. Number six, we have, over, we have overcome sin and the devil by his blood. Let me jump down to uh, Colossians 2 verse 14. Jesus, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and to condemn us. What is, what is he talking about? He's talking about the law. He's talking about the reason why people don't go to church and don't follow Jesus is because they want to hide behind their own morality, right? Like, as long as you don't cuss that much and you're a decently good human being, like, God's going to let you into heaven, Right? The gospel is for the prodigal son who said, Dad, I wish you were dead. Give me my money. And it's for the elder son who stayed home and did the right thing. Your, think about your best day. You were super moral. As best you can tell, you don't remember sinning. That cost Jesus his life. That's why the gospel is better than religion. Religion is demonic. It keeps people from the person and the work of Jesus. And so we can say, theologically, because he frees us from the power of sin and the devil, that Jesus is our Christus victor. You know what the word Nike means? It means an overcomer. It's a Greek god where they got the word Nike. It's a killer brand, right? I love Nike. When we go through Revelation chapter 2 and 3, you're going to hear this a lot. If you follow Jesus, you are an overcomer. Paul is, or uh, John, yeah, he wrote Revelation, pump fake. John is using political language that is saying Caesar, or in our case, our president, 
is not the ruler of the world. It's Jesus. Through Jesus' blood, we overcome the world, and we overcome sin and death, Satan and his demons. And because of that, we can approach God by the blood of Christ. Jesus successfully entered the presence of God by using his own blood. We've been, we have been sprinkled by his blood, and we can enter God's presence with Christ's blood. Thirdly and finally, communion is a meal that sustains our commitment to Jesus. Communion is a weekly covenant renewal. So, so again, like I said, the word covenant, you need to think about um, uh, marriage language. So in the Bible, there's uh, five covenants, and it uh, begins small. The first covenant is between God and, and Adam and Eve. Then it goes to a family, an extended family, through David, a nation. And then through Jesus, right, it's for the whole world. What's a covenant? When a greater party makes a deal with a lesser party. And obviously, hello, if there's a God, he has the upper hand, right? And so God could, he could pummel us. But what does he do? He sends a son. He reminds us of his commitment towards us in the marriage. And he reminds us to come back home, keep the light on. Yes, your sin is embarrassing. Like you felt embarrassed is what I meant to say. Maybe bitterness, maybe anger. And those things pull us away from God, thinking that God would not love us now at this point, maybe five years ago, but not now. It's not true. That's religion, but that's not the gospel. In Hebrews 9.15, the writer says, for this reason, Christ is the mediator of what? A new covenant, a new relationship, a new commitment, a new marriage, that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal life. That's why we take communion. We're reminded we are the people of God. We are the sons and daughters of God. We are the beloved. We are the, that is our greatest, did you know that? That is our greatest identity as human beings, whether you, like, whether you say you're a religious or a Christian, is that you are the beloved son, beloved daughter of God. That is who you are at your core. That is your identity. The writer goes on to say, now that he's died, there's a ransom that set, him free, set us free from our sins, committed under the first covenant. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus set us free from all the rules that we try to keep to win favor with God and other people because we don't really want to follow Jesus. We just want to be good, nice, moral, and just get through the weekend. And Jesus says, I'll take care of that. You don't have to be good to be in my presence. You could actually be bad in the presence of love. I'm not going to run away from you. I'm not going to walk away from you. I'm actually going to give myself over to die for you. Finally, in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty five, 25, Paul says in the same way, after supper, he, Jesus, took the cup saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever, every week for us, whenever you drink it, in remembrance of me. Remember, remember the, the bitterness <laughs> of your sin. Remember the season where you engaged in a really high-risk behavior. And like the Israelites, you were on the run. Remember that the blood bought you, cleansed you, redeemed you, washed you. And that Jesus was your propitiation on your behalf, meaning that Jesus suffered the freight train of the wrath of God 
so that you might be developed by the love of God. Remember, church, Jesus is saying we are a forgetful people. This is why we need to gather every weekend. It's not a if I have a time to thing. It's a I need to be reminded of the depth of my soul and what is actually true about me and what is actually true about this world. And so if you have your communion emblems, we're going to take communion together as a church. If you're watching home, we encourage you to grab those today. And may you be reminded of the greatest movement in meals, that the God of the universe went on your behalf and died the death that you should have died, paid the penalty that you should have paid, did it willingly, did it freely. Not so that we could have a weekly snack, but that we could be reminded of the divinity, the humanity, and the love of God. Let's take communion together, church. God, thanks so much for this meal and for what it means to so many people in the room and for, for what it has yet to mean for people that aren't Jesus followers but are here watching online and in person uh, trying to figure this thing out called life and faith. God, thanks for being a God that um, provides a way out of our bitterness and our pain and our hurry. And we thank you that communion is a meal of really of spiritual formation, that it, that it needs to happen to us throughout the week, that we need to be reminded to journey inward and to journey with you, that your spirit is forming us, that your spirit is, that your spirit is redeeming the most traumatic moment of our lives, whether that's something we have done or somebody that, something that somebody has done to us. Your blood speaks to that. Your broken body speaks to that. God, may we be your people that remember every day the love that you have for us. And may we not, may we not keep it to ourselves. May we keep building a longer table after a longer table after a longer table. More people need to know that they're loved than pressured into some sort of religion. We thank you for the way that your love has captivated those that are here and online that are, that are followers of Jesus. And we ask that it would continue to do the way we live our lives captivate and invite others to journey with you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.